Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include the economics of COVID, excessive stimulus, fake news, and the future of retail. Our first speaker is Alex Tabarak, who is a professor of economics at George Mason, who has recently written about the economics of COVID treatments and vaccines. Alex has been advocating for much more permissive government policy towards allowing for faster regulatory approval of at-home cheap testing, replacing lockdowns with smarter reopenings, wider spacing of vaccine doses to allow for faster first vaccinations in a large population, as well as a more effective response from a delayed booster shot. Our second speaker is my very dear friend Desmond Lockman, who is the former Chief Emerging Markets Economist at Solomon Brothers, where I worked, and who now works at AEI. Desmond will speak about the Biden administration's desire to go big on its stimulus and infrastructure bills. Desmond will focus on whether we should have an expansionary fiscal and monetary policy during the current upswing and whether it will be counterproductive. Our third speaker will be Sam Weinberg from Stanford, who is a professor in education and history. Sam will discuss his recent research about how people judge the credibility of digital content on the internet. Sam wants to teach kids how to evaluate fake news. This will be followed by a panel discussion on the future of retail. Our first speaker is Jason Goldberg, who is the Chief Commerce Strategy Officer at Publicis. He is known in the e-commerce community as the Retail Geek. Jason co-hosts his own podcast entitled The Jason and Scotch Go that is iTunes' top-rated e-commerce podcast. I've asked Jason to speak about digital disruption, why it matters, and where it ends up. Our second speaker on retail and my co-host for this panel is Catherine Manasabian, who is the president and GM of North American Commerce for Stanley Black & Decker. Catherine will be tell us why the do-it-yourself phenomena is not a fad and that fixing up the home is now deeply embedded in the homeowner's psyche. There is a real emotional response to fixing and improving your own home. Our final speaker this week is Sucharita Kadali, who is a VP with Forrester, where she is an expert in digital business strategy, e-commerce, consumer behavior, and online shopping. Sucharita will speak about changes in retail as brands are now pursuing a direct-to-consumer relationship with both physical stores and e-commerce. This will be a game-changer for brands that will be creating personalized product lines. If you're interested in listening to a replay of this program or any of our previous episodes or wish to read a transcript, you can find these on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple, Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Next weekend is Memorial Day, so we will be taking a week off for What Happens Next, but we'll be right back with our next show the following Sunday, June 6. All right, let's begin today's program with George Mason economist, Alex DeBerek. Go ahead, Alex. Uh, well, thank you, Larry, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, a little bit of background. Uh, more than a year ago, uh, Nobel Prize winner uh, Michael Creamer and I were asked by the Domestic Policy Council of the White House to write a report about accelerating vaccines uh, using incentives. And joined by a number of top economists, we advocated for world spending on the order of about $150 billion to invest in approximately 18 vaccine candidates. And we wrote similar reports for the British government and subsequently came to advise the World Bank and, and other governments and organizations. Now, the world did not go as big as we wanted, but 
Operation Warp Speed, they spent about $15 billion, and that was really tremendously uh, successful. Uh, in a recent paper in Science, we calculate that if we get, say, 3 billion vaccine courses in 2021, that's 6 billion doses or so, it's a conservative estimate, that those doses will be worth $17.4 trillion, trillion dollars. And Operation Warp Speed, these should be credited with certainly not all, but a significant fraction of that pretty high uh, benefit-to-cost uh, ratio. Moreover, it's not too late to do more. Uh, we calculate that an additional 1 billion courses of capacity available in 2021, that would be worth $500 billion to $1 trillion for the world, uh, depending upon how fast we can get that capacity online. Now, is it possible? Is it possible to get more doses uh, this year? It is. Uh, for example, the Biden administration, uh, they paid Merck uh, $269 million to upgrade plants to produce the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine. And that was a smart investment uh, that will pay off not just for the U.S., but for the entire world. Now, let me also note now that the problem with production uh, is not uh, patents or intellectual property. Uh, the problem is a shortage of raw material and human capital. Uh, plastic bags, literally, are a bigger constraint on production than patents. We didn't spend enough, you know, a year and a half ago, uh, and now there's no cheap and easy solution. You know, abrogating patents simply won't help to increase uh, production. You actually have to make some investments. Another smart investment would be to put more money into nasal and oral vaccines. So a lot of vaccine hesitancy is fear of needles. Uh, you know, adults don't like to say that they're afraid of needles, but many of them are. And in addition, just the mere idea of a needle kind of sends the message, this is sort of serious uh, medicine. A person in white a lab coat gives it to you. It's serious. You should be afraid of it. When in actual fact, a lot of the pharmaceuticals which we take uh, regularly without a second thought, like ibuprofen, they're actually even more dangerous than the vaccines. The vaccines are very safe. So nasal vaccines could do a lot to alleviate vaccine hesitancy, get rid of the uh, needle. And nasal vaccines, they also have other technical advantages. They stimulate the mucosal uh, immune system and so forth. And there are some of these in phase one trials, and the United States could accelerate those. Now, as you know, the United States is in very, very good shape uh, due to uh, Operation Warp Speed. Uh, the next job, however, is to vaccinate the world, which we're only just beginning to think about. And there are health, economic, and political reasons to vaccinate the world. So the health reasons. The unvaccinated are the biggest risk for generating mutations and new variants. Uh, the listeners have heard, no doubt, of the South African, Indian, and Brazilian variants. Well, the best way to protect Americans from these and other variants is to vaccinate South Africans, Indians, and Brazilians. Moreover, economics. Even after the United States and other high-income countries are vaccinated, the U.S. will continue to bear economic costs due to reduced exports, imports, and supply chain disruptions. So there are pure economic reasons to vaccinate the world. And the United States could help this with additional support for COVAX and additional investment in vaccine capacity. The benefits are bigger than the costs. Politically, 
we also have a choice. Do we want an American plan to vaccinate the world or a Chinese plan? I would rather have an American plan. So this is an opportunity to regain some of the lost uh, luster, some of the luster that we have lost in foreign policy. We have an opportunity to regain that today. Now, as we vaccinate the world, we should think about ways to stretch the doses until scarcity is ended. So, for example, the first Pfizer or Moderna dose protects at about 80% efficacy, at least against most variants. Now, it's better in my view to bring two people from 0% protected to 80% protected than to bring one person to 80% and then give them a second shot to bring them to 95% protected. Loosely speaking, the first dose prevents you from dying. The second dose avoids the sniffles. Uh, Canada uh, recently did this. They delayed the second dose, and that has allowed them to catch up and, in fact, overtake the United States on the percent of those who are substantially protected. Getting more first doses out sooner will also reduce transmission and get the world to herd immunity sooner. We should also be running trials on fractional dosing, such as half dosing. The phase one and phase two trials for Moderna and Pfizer both indicate that a half dose generates a robust immune response. Now, this is not an unheard of idea. Uh, fractional dosing was used successfully in previous uh, epidemics. And think about it this way. Half dosing is equivalent to doubling the number of Pfizer and Moderna factories instantly. There's a trillion dollar bill lying on the sidewalk and we need to pick it up. Summing up, it's not too late to do more. We should invest in nasal and oral vaccines. We should vaccinate the world and we should stretch doses or investigate this through fractional dosing and delaying the second dose and that's going to be important, not so much in the United States, but in order to vaccinate the world quickly, we want to stretch doses. Thanks very much, Larry. Thanks, Alex. First question is, what is driving uh, the anti-vaxxing um, decision? Do you think it's predominantly this fear of needles? Is that your number one guess for the delay? I wouldn't say predominantly. I think there's a lot of different feelings. Different people have different feelings. So starting with the least uh, vaccine hesitant, um, look, we just have to make this convenient, which we're starting to do in the United States. But there are a lot of people who don't want to take the time off work, um, who are not even, they're not even totally, they don't even totally understand this vaccine is completely free. You know, there's no hidden charges. Your insurance company is not going to come back against you or something like that. It's totally free. Um, so there's that kind of hesitancy. Then there is kind of, as I said, needle hesitancy, and that's, there's, there's some of that. We know with the flu vaccine that people don't get the flu vaccine because they're somewhat afraid of needles. And then there's kind of this political thing, you know, that uh, uh, Republicans, you know, they don't need, they got strong immune systems and, you know, they, we don't need a vaccine. Look, and, and to that I just say, look, let's just call it the Trump vaccine, okay? Look, Trump did a lot of things wrong. He did one thing very right, which was supporting Operation Warp Speed. Uh, we should all uh, recognize that Trump did something right 
okay? So as a Republican, if you're, uh, you, know, you know, just say this is the Trump vaccine and, and go get your shots in arms uh, and thank Operation Warp Seed. So that's my message on that. What about kids? Um, we haven't had the proof yet that it's very beneficial between the ages, I think, of zero and 12. Um, should we just wing it and start giving it to kids? Um, and then it's part one and part two, if we want to make it easy for kids to get it, should we just go to schools and just start giving the vaccine uh, at the school? Right, so I think this is a little bit tricky. Um, the Pfizer vaccine is now approved for uh, 12 years old uh, and over. I suspect the Moderna will be approved for that as well. Um, it's tricky because the dangers to kids are really pretty low, right? So kids, in effect, are already, you know, uh, protected uh, just by being uh, young. So when you're giving them a vaccine, is the risk-reward ratio uh, acceptable? Um, because you don't want people to be taking on so much risk for other people. Um, now, in the case of these vaccines, particularly the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, uh, we've now got data from millions of people, and the vaccines really look very, very safe. So I also worry about variants, which will be coming in. The Indian variant looks particularly transmissible. Um, so I think that there are some uh, benefits to having kids vaccinated. So if it were, you know, my kids are all 18 and over. They've all been vaccinated. But if my kid were, you know, 12 to 18, I would have them vaccinated. Um, Getting younger than that, you know, maybe wait a little while, see, see what happens. I think particularly in the United States, you know, we're very fortunate. Um, so we have some opportunities to wait. It's not irrational to wait, you know, to vaccinate your kids, uh, but neither is it irrational to have your kids vaccinated. Uh, the vaccines look very, very safe. So personally, um, I would have the kids vaccinated. I think that's a reasonable choice, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't deplore anyone who decides not to have their kids vaccinated. Any adult, however, should definitely be vaccinated. Um, what about taking the, the vaccine on the road? Um, you know, knocking door to door, um, hanging out, establishing more than just pharmacies, putting it in grocery stores, putting it in airports, uh, putting it in town halls, doing it at the post office, literally going door to door. Why not um, make it incredibly easy uh, to not, uh, to, just to get vaccinated? Because if you're saying yeah, that I mean, the savings I, are a thousand okay. times, then you know knocking on every door seems like a very cheap solution. Yeah, I, I think we should make it um, uh, you know easily available in, in all neighborhoods. I also like this idea. You know, I said you know staple a lottery ticket to every vaccine card, and some states have started to do that. So Ohio has done that, and uh, the moment Ohio did that, their vaccine rate started to go up again. So I think the vaccine hesitancy is not that deep. And a uh, nice thing about a, you know, a lottery ticket, uh, if nobody, if, it's actually a raffle, right? So if nobody gets vaccinated, then you should definitely get vaccinated just to get the lottery ticket because then you're going to win for sure, right? <laughs> um, so uh, it's a nice model in that uh, the fewer people are vaccinated, the more the lottery ticket is worth. So uh, it, it, it makes sense 
to uh, to get vaccinated just to get the lottery ticket. Um, so I, I encourage other states to take that up. And New York has done something sort of similar, except in New York they're just giving you a regular lottery ticket. In Ohio they're giving you a ticket which uh, only vaccinated people get, and so the fewer people get vaccinated, the bigger the chances of winning the lottery. And that's actually a smarter model. You talked a little bit about nasal vaccines in your introduction of six minutes. What um, what do you suppose that would cost to redevelop the vaccine to be nasal, and what, how do you think about how many more people will end up getting it instead, uh, if we versus the status quo? If you were going to evaluate, you said that vaccines in general pay, had a thousand to one payoff, um, seventeen trillion of benefits at fifteen billion dollar expense. Uh, do you think the nasal payoffs will be similar? Yeah, so I, I do think we know from the, you know, uh, from the flu vaccine that a lot of people have this needle uh, hesitancy. And, there's, and again, it's, it's not just the fear of the needle. It's that the, the needle sends the message that this is, you know, a big deal while just a squirt up the nose, you know, doesn't seem like a big deal or popping a pill doesn't seem like a big deal. So you might even be able to do it over the counter, right? So, uh, again, you don't have to you know, you know, be in this sort of sterile setting where somebody is, you know, in white coat, it seems like a lab, you know, just squirt up the nose. Um, so, yeah, I think that would be quite uh, successful. And we also have to keep in mind that this is not just for the United States, this is for the entire world. So um, there's still very, very big gains. Um, to making vaccination easily available. Um, a nasal vaccine would be great for kids, you know, again, assuming we have good safety results and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, so I, I, I think when you think about this on a world scale, then the gains would be very large. You know, in your, in your discussions in the past, not on the show, you've, you've mentioned that when you look at the upside downside associated with the vaccines, um, that you know if it causes a blood clot in five people, but uh, if it saves a million lives on the other side of the equation, it totally makes it makes sense. Um, why shouldn't we apply that same sort of logic with kids under 12? I mean, we think it's going to be. Although you mentioned that the benefits aren't as great, let's just say it's just one percent of. Uh, the benefits to an adult, why doesn't that automatically hit the threshold for going ahead and giving the kids the vaccine? Well, because the the benefits to the adults do go to the adults. The benefits to the kids are not just 1%. Um, they're, you know, less than one-tenth of 1%. I mean, if you look at the death rates, right, the death rates go up um, exponentially. So a person who is 80-year-old hasn't got it's not a hundred times greater risk, you know, it's, it's several thousand times uh, greater risk. So, um, so I do think the young are less at risk, though, again, all of this depends very much on what you think the future will look like. So I think it's quite plausible that the future will look like a coronavirus circulating, you know, around the world for the rest of our lifetimes. Uh, in that case, then you may as well get your kids vaccinated now because they're going to be vaccinated sooner or later. Um, so, yeah, like I said, I'm in favor of, of, you know, I would vaccinate the kids 12 years and older, but I don't think this is a case where we should be, um, uh, 
putting a lot of moral pressure uh, there because I think it's also reasonable not to do it or to wait a while. Um, I, you know, I, I couldn't, I, I can fault somebody for not getting vaccinated, you know, if they're an adult. I just think that's a foolish decision, you know, um, particularly if you hadn't have, if you haven't had COVID, then the benefits of the vaccination far, far exceed uh, the cost. Like, just go, just go do it, dude. I mean, you know, this is the vaccines. They're cheap. They're effective. And the way I put it, it's like getting a superpower, right? So who wouldn't want a superpower to make you immune to bullets? You know, like Luke Cage, bullets would bounce off you. Well, the virus has killed many more people this year in the United States than have bullets. So don't you want to be immune to the virus? That's like better than being immune to bullets, right? You know, there's a lot more virus out there than there are bullets, and the virus has killed many more people, 500 and almost 600,000 people now in the United States. So don't you want to be immune to that? That's like a superpower. So I think about getting vaccinated as like gaining a superpower. Let me try turning the topic now to um, testing. In your mm-hmm. writings, you mentioned that uh, our regulatory regime should open up to allow for more home testing, particularly at home, cheap testing. And you've mentioned that uh, even though the vaccine might be something like 95% effective, uh, it still means that this uh, virus will be around potentially forever. What, what should we do to encourage uh, regulatory easing for testing for COVID at home, given that it's not going away? Yeah, the FDA has really been derelict um, on this question throughout the entire uh, crisis. And we should have had rapid uh, antigen uh, testing, uh, at-home testing, much, much, much uh, earlier. And the FDA's real intellectual stumbling block here was to think about these tests as if they were uh, sort of a medical test. And when you have a medical test, Uh, You know, you want to be be pretty accurate to say whether you've got, you know, some disease or something like that, right? Because then you're going to have some treatment decision, okay? And you need the test to be pretty accurate if you're going to make a treatment decision based upon this. But in the case of COVID tests, you can have these paper strip tests, like a pregnancy test or a pregnancy test, which we're starting to get now. And they're they're reasonably accurate. But they're not perfectly accurate. They're not, they're not super, super. They're not quite as accurate in some ways as a PCR test. But that's fine. Because what do you do when you're test positive? You stay home for a few days. Okay? And then you test yourself again. And that's all we need to do. If people would stay home when they know that they're infected, and then they infect fewer people, you drive R down. That's all you need to do to eliminate the virus. So just knowing when people are highly infectious. So the test is not really a test for whether you're infected. It's a test for whether you're infectious, whether you have enough virus in your uh, bloodstream, in your, in your body, so that you're going to be spewing it out and infecting other people. And you don't need it to be super accurate. You just need that when you've got a whole bunch of virus in your stream, it says you've got it. You might not have very many symptoms. You might be asymptomatic, okay? And then you just stay home for a couple of days. And that will drive R down and would, would have, you know, had we had this earlier, um, this would have allowed, this would have saved a lot of lives. 
And it allows for things like, you know, in other countries, they're using this to, you know, go back to concerts and, you know, uh, do it. Uh, you know, you could have used it at workplaces, you know, like at the uh, meat processing plants and things like that. Um, this would have worked out, you know, very, very, very well. So I'm glad we're finally seeing these tests beginning to come on the market, but it should have happened a long time ago. Alex, thank you very much. Uh, we're going to go on to our second speaker, Desmond Lockman. Desmond's a very good friend of mine. We worked together at Salm Brothers, where he was chief emerging market economist and former deputy director of the IMF. He's currently at AEI. Uh, Desmond, why don't you start with your discussion about fiscal monetary stimulus? Sure. But uh, what I wanted to talk about was inflation and you know, whether we're going to be getting inflation in the U.S. economy. A good way to think about it is to think about two parts of inflation. One is asset price inflation, and the other is actual price inflation, you know, things like the consumer prices, etc. So if we start with asset price inflation, you know, there's no doubt that we've got asset price inflation in spades. Uh, we're just seeing very elevated equity valuations. We're seeing uh, bubbles in housing markets, uh, emerging markets, credit markets, what people are calling the everything bubble. And that owes a lot to you know, what the Fed did last year uh, in response to the COVID pandemic. What they did is they increased the size of their balance sheet by something like $4 trillion. Uh, it took Powell's uh, Fed to do that in something like six months, nine months, whereas Bernanke in relation to 2008, it took him uh, something like six years. So we've had massive printing of money that really got asset price inflation going. Now, the issue with price inflation uh, the argument that we haven't had it so far is that the recession was deep. You've got a lot of unemployed workers. You've still got something like 8 million, 10 million people uh, who uh, reduced a uh, number of people working now than before. So you think that there's downward pressure. But the issue is that we've got huge amount of uh, stimulus in the economy. So what we had, uh, there was an initial uh, stimulus package, $2 billion plus. Now we had in December, we had $900 billion. Now Biden, just the first part of his three proposals that he's rushed through Congress, he's got $1.9 trillion through Congress. So if you take the $1.9 trillion and add it to the $900 billion, uh, that gives you something like $2.8 trillion, which is 13% of GDP, that is massive stimulus by any standard. What makes one think that that has to be inflationary is that the gap, in other words, the difference between the level at which the economy is operating and the level at which it could operate at full employment, the Congressional Budget Office estimates that's only 3%. So to throw 13% of that at a 3% problem, that has to raise red flags about inflation later on this year. You're going to close those gaps. The economy is going to overheat. You're going to get the inflationary pressure. Other things, what strengthens the argument that you're going to get inflationary pressure 
is there's a huge amount of pent-up demand in the economy. So one way we know that there's got to be a lot of pent-up demand is savings rates during the lockdown were particularly high as we go to normalization, opening up the economy, everybody's vaccinated, we would expect that uh, uh, pent-up demand to be spent. So that comes on top of the 13% stimulus that they're getting. So that is another source of major uh, inflationary pressure. Uh, Another way of looking at the pent-up demand is if you look at the money supply, uh, money supply, broad money supply, now is growing at something like 25%. That is by far the fastest rate of money supply we've seen in the past 60 years. You know, that previous peaks were something like 12, 13%. Here we're talking about 25%. So on the demand side, you've got huge amount of demand. And then you run into issues on the supply side, you know, that because you've got unemployment insurance lasting till September, what you're seeing now is you're seeing labor market shortages, job openings are so much higher than the number of people who come forward to work. Uh, and then you've got problems on uh, the supply chains have got interrupted, computer chips, etc. Automobile co- companies can't produce as much. So when you put the whole picture together, it's difficult for me at least to see how you're not going to get overheating of the economy uh, towards the end of the year. And that is going to give rise to inflationary pressure. I mean, we've, of course, seen inflationary pressure in a number of ways. The latest CPI print was much above what uh, was expected, something like 4.2%. And if you look at inflation expectations, that is worrying, too, that if you look at the bond market, the 10-year break-even rates, you know, they're something like 2.5%, which is above the Fed's target. And you've also got uh, uh, consumer expectations of inflation. You look at the Michigan survey, they're at over 4%. So you're seeing inflationary pressures uh, building up uh, all over the place. Now, another reason why you think you're going to get inflation uh, going forward is the Fed is indicating that they're going to tolerate higher inflation Uh, So they're happy with inflation running above 2% for a while. So what that means is it's unlikely that they're going to step on the brakes any time soon. The fact that they're not going to step on the brakes any time soon, you know, that heightens the chances that you're going to overshoot on the inflation side. They're going to be late to the party. They should be anticipating the economy is going to be overheating. They should already be moving towards a tightening stance. That doesn't look like it's occurring. Now, the reason that I'm not sure that uh, we get inflation, you know, really taking hold in uh, next year, 2022, you know, while I think that we'll get the inflationary pressures, inflation rising well above the Fed's target, once the Fed slams on the brakes, then you've got the problem with all of these asset price bubbles that I started talking about. And those asset price bubbles are premised on the notion that interest rates are going to stay close to zero forever. So when the interest rates start going up, that's the time that you expect the bubbles to burst. If the bubbles burst, then you're going to have problems. You know, the Fed's already indicated uh, they came out with the uh, 
financial stability report, they pointed out that there's too much leverage in the hedge funds, etc. Uh, you know, if you've got an everything bubble, you've got emerging markets tanking, uh, this isn't going to look uh, pretty next year. So the short answer is I think I see inflationary pressure building through the remainder of this year. Fed slams on breaks. Uh, we're in a different ball game. You know, then we'll be back to talking about deflation and needing to pump the economy up again. Hey, Des. Yeah. So, uh, so, sorry, sorry, I've just got to just turn this off. Uh, okay, that's um, that's what I want to say. Let me, let me cut you off, Barrett. I'll start asking some questions. Um, why do you think the Biden administration wants to go big at this part of the cycle? What, what's motivating uh, them to spend all this money? Okay, well, it's kind of, you know, it's certainly not uh, on the economic uh, arguments, you know, that uh, they think that this is their opportunity to push their agenda through. You know, they think that they're not going to have this chance uh, again. So they're really rushing uh, through what they can. You know, I should have just added that you know, what is further of concern, you know, in terms of what they're doing is that in addition to the uh, 1.9 trillion rescue plan that they've got in place, they're now talking about wanting to have a jobs plan. They're wanting to have this families plan. You know, these things have got $2 trillion price tags over 10-year period, and they're not, they're not proposing to fund them properly. So, you know, if you look at the uh, uh, jobs plan, the expenditure on the infrastructure is going to be over a period of eight years, but the financing is going to be over a period of 15 years. So once again, you know, you've got uh, budgetary pressures pushing. I don't, this is not uh, uh, this is uh, not a well thought out uh, strategy. I don't understand it, you know, from a political point of view, because what this looks to me it's designed to do is to get your boom in 2021 to have the economy really going at rapid speed, uh, six, seven, eight percent growth rate, growth rates that we haven't seen in 50 years. Uh, but then what you're doing is you're setting yourselves up for an asset price bust the following year. So, you know, from an electoral point of view, uh, this seems to be to be pretty much misguided. But to answer your question, I think they see the opportunity, you know, that you've also got parts of the Biden administration Economics isn't their strong suit. You know, they think everything you can have, you know, free health care, free education, forgive people's loans, you know, but you don't need to worry about financing it. You know, and I think that that's really uh, setting us up for real trouble. I have a question, Desmond, if I can jump in. It's Catherine. Um, given the retail panel right after this, I was wondering um, if you have a perspective on um, that pent-up spend that you mentioned, you know, indexing to certain categories versus others. And then, you know, as a follow-up to that question, you also called the housing market, you know, part of the part of the bubble. And I'm just curious if you think that it's a little bit different given that debt service levels are, you know, at historic lows. And in this case, that there's just more more solid fundamentals. Yeah, look, I wouldn't make too much, uh, you know, of the housing boom per se, you know, that I don't think one wants to make comparisons necessarily with 2008. What, what bothers me about the housing is that it's part of a pattern of bubbles everywhere, you know, so uh, 
you've got inflated values, you know, that housing prices are increasing by 12% over the last 12 months. That's the fastest rate we've had since something like 2006. Um, so I'm, I'm concerned. The great concern that I've got on the bubble side uh, isn't the equity bubble, isn't the housing bubble, but it's the bubble in the credit markets. You know, that you've got lending that uh, is just very ill-advised. You've got people lending at ridiculously low spreads um, and taking on the risk. We know that there are going to be a huge amount of defaults. I look at emerging markets. You know, that's half the global economy. Uh, you look at places like Brazil. You look at uh, places like Turkey, South Africa, India. You know, these places are shot, you know, in terms of uh, the um, uh, their public debt levels are very high. Their budget deficits are very high. And um, yet the money has continued to keep flowing to them. You know, that's just setting one up for an accident. But, uh, you know, just in terms of pent-up demand, you know, I'm not sure where that pent-up demand uh, actually uh, gets uh, spent. But you're talking about uh, very substantial uh, sums of money. You know, this could be something like 8% of GDP quite easily uh, that is pent-up. But, you know, I don't have strong views as the way in which uh, the economy has clearly changed, you know, as a result of the pandemic. So where people exactly are going to be spending the money, uh, I don't know, but uh, they'll spend and that'll add to, uh, you know, it adds to, I'm looking at this from a big picture point of view, it, this adds to huge amount of aggregate demand, it's going to exceed the supply and I don't see how you don't get inflationary pressure. Can I ask Catherine's question a different way? If you were uh, a manufacturer of items that would be purchased by consumers that would be used at home, would you want to increase your inventory significantly in anticipation of a of much higher demand, or would you run inventory a little bit lean given the possibility of a bust? No, I think uh, you know that I, th I think that the way in which this is going to go, I'd want to. Uh, um, have the inventory to sell it, you know, because that's what we're going to get. So this is going to come in at least different kind of phases. You know, I think I'm getting ahead of the game uh, when I say that the, Fed, the Fed's not going to raise interest rates anytime soon. You know, what they're going to be doing is they're going to be talking, talking about tapering. So I think that the next six months, the next eight months, uh, you're going to have this economy ready on fire. You know, so you're going to get the economy strong. But it's, as soon as you start talking about the Fed having to slam on the brakes or interest rates or, you know, the bond vigilantes come on the scene, uh, that's when you'll get the bubbles uh, uh, unraveling. But it's very difficult. You know, I mean, I can see the forces, but it's very difficult to get uh, uh, the exact timing because basically what I'm saying is that two things, they're working in opposite directions, you know, that if you didn't have the asset price thing to worry about, I'd say that you're off to the races on inflation. But you've got, you can't abstract from the fact that you've got very bad credit decisions having been made on a massive scale. And, uh, you know, if you get interest rates rising, you know, you get the unraveling, um, you know, that, that could come sooner. I, my baseline is that uh, the next six months, the next eight months, we're going to be on fire. But 2022, I'm pretty sure that's going to look uh, pretty ugly. And just, just following the logic. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, hey, I'm sorry. I was going to interrupt. This is Jason Goldberg. Uh, 
I'm, I'm just curious because this mirrors so much of these common conversations I've, I've had with CEOs. Every retail CEO wants to call this uh, next year the Roaring Twenties, and they're super excited about all this revenge spending that they're expecting um, after the pandemic. And I keep pointing out that I'm not a economist, uh, so I'm thrilled to finally talk to one. Uh, but I think the Great Depression uh, was the outcome of the Roaring Twenties, <laughs> and they, uh, they they never seem to want to talk about that. Like it, it I mean, is that your your primary concern about like this potential inflation is? Yeah, it's basically it's basically the same kind of thing. Is that you know you have a roaring economy. Uh, it, it, what you had in the twenties is you had a roaring economy. You had a roaring equity market that got way ahead of itself. When it cracked, uh, you know that you were in a different ball game. So what I'm saying here is that what we've got is we're going to have a roaring economy, but the financial side of the economy is very shaky, you know, because you've had a huge amount of money being lent ill-advisedly, you know, people taking extraordinary risks. And when that doesn't pan out, they've been doing it on the basis that the interest rates are going to stay low. But there's no way that the interest rates can stay low if the economy overheats. So as the inflation rises, as it becomes obvious to even the Fed, that the inflation uh, target is going to be well exceeded, the Fed's got to slam on the brakes. If the Fed slams on the brakes, then you get the asset uh, prices unraveling. Um, you know, we saw this in 2000. I mean, it's different from 2008. You know, you can say that the banks are better capitalized, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but what I'm seeing here is that in 2008 you had a uh, a housing bubble, you had a bit of a credit bubble in the United States, but you didn't have it everywhere uh, that uh, bubbles and credit being misallocated on the scale that it is. You didn't have the emerging markets looking nearly as bad as they do today. So that's why I'm thinking you're going to get the roaring 20s. You're going to get to the next six months, eight months is going to be uh, great fun. And then we'll have the hangover in 2022. Does what, uh, you know, this is a, I'll call it a self-inflicted wound of creating an unnecessary boom and bust um, where you'll have this tremendous amount of work effort, bad decisions made, and then uh, catastrophe in 2022. But what about longer term than that? Is it going to cause other sorts of problems? Uh, will it result in much higher inflation expectations that will reduce uh, long-term growth? How do, you, how do you think about long-term inflationary expectations changes and uh, things that happen that is more than just a, a near-term boom and bust? Yeah, but it, you know, it's the issue is that when you've got bubbles of this sort, when you've got this much credit misallocated, when you get the adjustment, that's going to be major. You know, that's that's going to be something, I don't want to say it's going to be exactly like 2008, but it's certainly going to be very much more severe than your regular recession. So, you know, the notion of where we're going long-run inflation, you know, that's another issue, you know, that what is bad, you know, from long-run inflation point of view is that what these people are doing is they're saddling us with a huge amount of debt, you know, so when you just look at the projections of the amount of public debt that we're going to have, we're going to be way above 
the levels that we were at the end of the Second World War. What that does is that then makes it very difficult for the Federal Reserve to control inflation because if they raise interest rates, then they make the public finances even more difficult. You know, so more money gets spent uh, on... Uh, so what it does is it's setting us up for long-run inflation. You know, that is... Uh, uh, we eventually might have to inflate our way out of the debt in one way or another. So that's not good for long-run inflation. But, you know, I think that that is something one worries about in uh, 2025 or, you know, somewhere down the road. Uh, you know, and there are other forces, you know, that people are arguing, you know, what's going on in China, you know, demographically, you know, that China's been a huge deflationary impact on the global economy the last 30 years. You know, that's turning around the demographic factors that might add to inflation. But then there's also technological progress, you know, from a long-run inflation point of view. Uh, there are many other forces that work. But, you know, I can't see, uh, uh, you know, I'm not trying to look beyond uh, um, 2022, 2023, you know, and I think that um, uh, that's pretty bad. Incidentally, you know, my view is pretty similar. It, who's got the same kind of view as I have is Larry Summers uh, has got the first part of my view, you know, he's calling these Biden's policies the most irresponsible policies that we've seen in the last 40 years, you know, that this is clearly going to lead to inflation and overheating. I think what he's not seeing is he's not seeing that once you get the overheating and you get the interest rates rising, then you've got a problem with all of these bubbles. Des, thank you very much. We're going to move on to our next speaker, who is Sam Weinberg, who is the Margaret Jacks Professor of Education, History, and American Studies at Stanford. He'll be telling us about fake news. Sam, why don't you go ahead? Sam, you may still be on. Uh, yes, on I'm on mute. Can you hear me now? I can. Go ahead. Okay, great. Um, so I think we all know that the, the, the Internet is a fairly treacherous place. Uh, we go to a site, and the website's author may not be its author. References that confer legitimacy have may have may have little to do with what the, the claim is supposedly that they anchor. And signals of credibility, such as a .org domain or even a 501c3 designation, can be the artful handiwork of a Washington, D.C. public relations firm. Unless you happen to have multiple PhDs in virology and economics and uh, the intricacies of federal uh, uh, inflationary policy, often the wisest thing to do when landing on an unfamiliar website is to ignore it. Now, learning to ignore information is not something that we teach in school. Teach, school teaches the opposite, to read a text thoroughly and closely before rendering judgment. And we consider anything short of that as rash. But on the web, where a witch's brew of advertisers and lobbyists and conspiracy theorists and foreign governments conspire to hijack our attention, the same strategy spells doom. Online, critical ignoring is just as important as critical thinking. And that's because, like a pinball bouncing from bumper to bumper, our attention careens from notification to text message to the next vibrating thing we have to check in our pocket. And the cost of this overabundance, as the late Nobel uh, laureate Herbert Simon observed, is scarcity. 
a flood of information depletes attention and fractures the ability to concentrate. Modern society, wrote Simon, faces a challenge to learn to, quote, allocate attention efficiently among the overabundance of sources that might consume it. And in the battle between attention and information, as you might expect, I would say, we're losing. So I'm an applied psychologist, and I study how ordinary people determine what is true online. My research team at Stanford recently completed a, a national sample, the largest study of its kind, of 3,446 high school students on their ability to evaluate digital sources. The students had a live internet connection, and they examined a series of websites, and one of which uh, claims to disseminate factual reports on climate science. Students were asked to judge whether the site was reliable. They could stand the site. They could Google somewhere else. They could do anything they wanted. But instead of leaving the site, the vast majority of students did exactly what they'd been taught in school. They stayed glued to the site and they read. They consulted the about page, they clicked on technical reports, they examined infographics and charts. And unless these kids happened to possess a master's degrees in climate science, the site, which was filled with the trappings of academic research, looked, well, I mean, it looked pretty good. Now the few students, less than 2%, who learned that the site was backed by the fossil fuel industry, did so not because they applied critical thinking to its content. They succeeded because they hopped off the website and consulted the open web. They used the web to read the web. As one student, one of the very few who searched the internet for the group's name wrote, quote, according to USA Today, Exxon has sponsored this nonprofit to pump out misleading information on climate change. Instead of getting tangled up in the site's uh, technical reports or suckered into its neutral sounding language, the student did what professional fact checkers that we've studied at the nation's largest news operations um, between Washington, D.C. and New York. I can't tell you their names, but if you would guess, you'd be right. What the student did is what these fact checkers, we watched these fact checkers do. She evaluated a site by leaving it. Fact checkers engage in what we call lateral reading, opening up new tabs across the tops of their screens to search for information about an organization or an individual before diving deeply into a site's contents. Only after consulting the open web do these professionals gauge whether expending effort and intention is worth it. They know that the first step in critical thinking is knowing when to deploy it. Now, the good news is that students can be taught to, to read the internet this way. We completed a, a, a study with, uh, at the University of North Texas in an online nutrition course where we embedded short instructional videos that demonstrated the dangers of dwelling on an unknown site. At the beginning of the course, students were duped by features that are ludicrously e easy to gain. A site's look, the presence of links to established sources, strings of references, the sheer quantity of information on the site. On a test we gave at the beginning of the semester, only three students in 87 left the site to evaluate it but by the end, three quarters did. Now, learning to resist the lure of dubious information demands a new, more than a new strategy in students' digital toolbox. It requires the humility that comes from facing our own vulnerability, that despite our formidable intellectual powers and critical thinking skills, 
No one is immune to the slippery tricks used by today's digital rogues. By dwelling on an unfamiliar site, imagining ourselves smart enough to outsmart it, we squander attention and cede control to the site's designers. Spending a few minutes vetting the site by drawing on the awesome powers of the open web, we regain control and with it our most precious resource, our attention. Thank you, Larry. That was great. Um, I, I want to start with uh, your discussion about Herbert Simon. Uh, so for the benefit of the audience, uh, Herbert Simon won the Nobel Prize. He was a professor predominantly at Carnegie Mellon. And he's known for a concept called Simon optimization. And so the question is, is you know, how do you make a decision? So let's say you go to the grocery store and they have um, three different cereals. You pick, you, know, you kind of evaluate them. But what do you do when there's 100 different cereals or even 100 different garbage bags? How do you decide which garbage bag to get? And Simon said what you end up doing is either you don't make a decision or you make a quick decision based upon uh, the facts. Um, you know, I want a garbage bag, I want it to be black, and I want a string. And you just pick one. Maybe use price a little bit. Um, why, and Sam, I want to bring this back to you now. What I think Simon showed is that we were not true optimizers. Um, but we were casual optimizers. We did the best we could given the amount of time and effort and attention we wanted to spend. Why do you think that kids or all internet users won't follow the same time optimization process that we use in a store uh, where we, you know, we do our best and we get in and we get out? Why is the store so different than the internet? Well, first of all, we're talking about something that we need to be taught. And few of us, we are driving on the information superhighway and few of us have a driver's license. So this is a technology that, we, that is ubiquitous, that has insinuated itself in every aspect of our life. And few of us have ever received formal instruction in how to use the awesome powers of an internet browser. So to go back to Simon, his concept there that I think you're talking about is the concept of satisficing. And Simon has an, had an amazing, amazing metaphor. He said that, that human information processing is like the coordination of the two blades of the scissors. One blade of the scissors in, this, in, the, in the context of computer technology is just that, the awesome, seemingly infinite powers of the computer technologies that are at our disposal. The second blade that we have to coordinate is the limited capacity of the human information processor. So on one hand, we have mind-boggling technologies, and on the other hand, we have human minds that are very easily boggled. And so we need to come up with what uh, a psychologist at, at Berlin's Max Planck Institute, Gerd Gigerenzer, calls fast and frugal heuristics. And these things are relatively easy to apply if they become habitual. Um, and this, this aspect that we saw with fact-checkers of not giving attention, not investing attention to a site we don't know without first going and looking at what the rest of the web has to say is an instance of a powerful, fast, and frugal heuristic where information is ignored in order to reach a more accurate decision than we otherwise would have. Going, uh, going back to the... I have, this is Sucharita, um, a question that I have is, this is a, that was a fantastic um, overview. 
how can we address this right now because education is going to take a long time. And I think Pew had research that showed that however bad the issue may be with students, it's even worse with older adults. And how do we address this issue with some of those older adults when we don't have an educational mechanism to reach them? Well, I think we do have educational mechanisms to reach them. Um, we just haven't tried. And so many of our older adults, and particularly if we're talking about the, uh, the digital divide, many of our older adults uh, pre-pandemic and hopefully, God willing, very soon after, uh, will go back to their public libraries to use a high-speed internet connection. And so we have not exploited the power of our public libraries in our major cities and towns and where we have older adults coming in and are often using the internet. We could come up with short nudges, short little interventions that are not going to solve, again, please don't take me, take me wrong, but they're not, we're, we're not going to come up with an error-free searching. What we're talking about is taking a significant bite out of the most common errors that people make. And we can come up with short educational modules to reach adults in our community centers and our libraries and our, and our places of worship uh, distributed by AARP. We can't blame solutions that have not yet been tested. We are in a new reality and need to address this reality in a spirit of trial and error to figure out what's going to be most effective. I want to spend a second on the example you gave about going to the Exxon website. Um, the Exxon website, I assume, was, uh, I guess, I assume was against uh, global warming or suggesting that it was not as bad as it was supposed to be. Um, and if they had the, checked, the student, the student actually went to the, the to the website of USA Today, which reported on the cloaked hidden money that Exxon gave to this organization. Got it. So they didn't go to the Exxon site. They looked at that and they looked at and they, they corroborated it across several different reputable news sites. And do you think what, what motivated the kids to, to read it? Um, was it maybe it was giving a different perspective than they were used to? What, um, why do you think that, why do you think that the study design was appropriate to elicit the fact that when you give kids something they don't know, they should probably investigate it a little bit, at least internally. Why is it so critical to leave a site and uh, question its uh, – let's say that the, at the site it said it was slanted. Would that have changed your view? Or uh, why is it so critical to, to recognize who's the dark money behind it? Well, I – you know – can we think of, a, of an issue of public policy where significant dollars are not involved, where the Internet is the place of gaining adherence, whether it's about the, uh, the efficacy of private prisons or the safety of legalizing marijuana or the fact that charter schools supposedly do better educating uh, uh, children in our inner, inner cities than public schools, whether it's the efficacy of a, of a ban on uh, plastic bags or on on um, any, we can't think of a, or a soda tax, should we have, should we tax sugary drinks? There is no issue of public policy where money is not involved, where the fight over gaining adherence is not played out on the internet. 
This is simply the place where we go. Think of in, in two, the 2016 election in California, they had 17 different ballot initiatives um, that, that, uh, for of direct democracy, everything from, you know, should porn stars wear condoms during live sex to whether the death penalty should be harder to meet out or easier. If the average citizen spent 10 minutes on each, that would be like close to three hours. The educational question, if we're interested in cultivating an informed citizenship, is whether at the end of those 10 minutes, will the citizen be more informed or more confused? You know, what I think is interesting is you know, the Internet, it reminds me a little bit of um, some of the complaints against Wikipedia that I guess what's different here is you have one specific site, but um, there was a concern that the Internet would, when you had an open source like Wikipedia, it would be less truthful than Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, but now we see that, that, that Wikipedia enforces itself and is actually more informative and more accurate. How do we think about just the gathering information on the internet? Are people learning more? Is it, is it, like, is it like Wikipedia that you know, some sites might be bad, but on balance they might be good and people can learn more quicker, faster, um, and maybe we shouldn't be as worried about it? Well, it's funny that you, you mentioned Wikipedia. You know, there's a there's a, a tremendous prejudice against Wikipedia that really was based on Wikipedia and Web 1.0. And so when you ask people uh, uh, and you ask kids, kids still are being taught, don't go to Wikipedia. It's sort of like uh, going to Wikipedia is like, I don't know, excuse the rather vulgar, vulgar example, like picking your nose. It's something that everybody does, but you're, you're not supposed to tell anybody about it. Um, Wikipedia is... When we watch professional fact checkers at very, very prestigious news outlets, often the first place that they would go to to get oriented to a topic, uh, one of the topics that we asked them to evaluate was gun control, was uh, the, the Wikipedia entry on gun control. Now, one of the things you're going to have people say, and again, this is the way that the public is really not informed by, about this site and about you know, not using Wikipedia as like a carpenter not using a hammer at this point when you are talking about a generalist getting oriented to a new topic. One of the things they'll say is anybody can change it. Well, unless you are a high, high-level Wikipedian, you're not going to be able to touch the, wet, the gun control entry. It is mm -hmm. one of, I think, at a certain point now, there's like 15 to 17 different kind of protected lock pages. People don't even realize that there's a lock on that page and that you can't change it. You have to have high editing permission. So I think, you know, part of, again, is that the technology and the rapidity of technological change, our own ability our human technology to keep a pace with the technological change has not kept up. We got a question from one of our listeners. It's Michael Kahana, uh, a former speaker on the show and a professor at Penn. He writes, um, it, academics deal with this problem all the time. Uh, there are publications in non-peer-reviewed journals or a journal with not as good reputation as one of the key, uh, big ones. How do we uh, reestablish the reputation of a website to allow kids or listeners or readers to evaluate the, the quality of the research. And if it is a second order place, uh, how many people are actually going to be looking at that site? Well, again, I mean, let, let's talk about the informed layperson. And, you know, it's, it's useful for a moment to, to think about the etymology of, of what layperson means, right? It comes from laity. It is the different, we, of the, it goes, comes from the Greek of, of the people. 
and it's a it's a it's a, a mark or a distinguishing factor between the laity and the ecclesiastical order. On you know, I'll, I'm going to put my ignorance out here for a second, Larry. I believe in human-caused climate change. I, however, have never read any, I am not a climate scientist, I have never read any of the original research done on the ice core. Um, I can, there's a certain point at which my mathematical knowledge ends and looking at some of the advanced uh, formula that are making the case, but I invest my trust. I invest my trust in organizations that have a kind of credibility, um, whether it's, uh, again, we were talking earlier about viruses. I will corroborate across the, the uh, New England Journal of Medicine with the American Medical Association, with the World Health Organization, with the Center for Disease Control, over, uh, for instance, uh, um, Scott Atlas, who, when you look at the man's credentials, he is not a virologist or an immunologist and was recruited because of the alignment of his views with those of our former president. So again, it's a, the question you're asking is a really, really fundamental one. How, on what basis do we invest trust? On what basis do we establish that the reputation of one group is, has greater probity than another? And that raises a really interesting educational question. Given what we're talking about is lay people, where we are, where the goal is to has have people make better than average choices when they have significant gaps in background knowledge, how do we think about the informed layperson in a digital society? Sam, thank you very much. Uh, we're going to move on to our next panel, uh, which is on the future of retail. Uh, we're going to start with Jason Goldberg. Uh, Jason is the retail geek. Uh, and he is also has his own podcast, uh, The Jason and Scott Show. Uh, Jason, why don't you start us off uh, at our retail panel? Hey, thanks so much, Larry. I love this. Uh, Sam just taught us how to avoid dubious information, and here I am to probably deliver some. So that's perfect. <laughs> uh, good, good segue. Uh, so I want to start by telling you a story about a terrifying meeting I was invited to early in my career. It was the winter of 1999, and I was a kid that grew up in California and had briefly been living in Florida for a few years. Uh, so I traveled to Minneapolis in the winter of 1999 to attend this meeting. I'm wildly underdressed, by the way, for the, the Minneapolis winter. Um, I was invited to a board meeting at Best Buy. And the, the CEO uh, then at Best Buy was the founder, Dick Schultz, and uh, they were in the process of acquiring the Musicland Group, which was the largest music retailer um, in, in the country. For those of you uh, on the younger side, uh, music used to be sold on these plastic circles that you bought at the mall. And uh, so Best Buy had just bought in the Musicland Group, and uh, Dick was convinced that Musicland should be investing in e-commerce. The CEO of Musicland Group, uh, this longtime uh, leader, Jack Euster, was kind of skeptical about the Internet. And so they brought me in to, uh, to give a position about how uh, Musicland could be successful selling music on the, the new uh, interweb. And uh, I, I had done something similar at, at uh, Blockbuster a few years before, so they, they perceived I had some credibility. So, so uh, you know, I presented uh, some data that we had collected and some experiences 
um, that I had had at, at Blockbuster, and I, I did recommend that, that Musicland launch an e-commerce site. But then I did something really scary. I said, and oh, by the way, so should Best Buy, right? And, and you guys need to be selling consumer electronics online. Um, and uh, Dick Schultz, who up to this point was my biggest fan and loved that I was trying to convince uh, Jack to get into e-commerce, um, suddenly turned white, right? And it, it, uh, he, he did not like that advice at all. And he looked at me in this, this you know, big, scary meeting that I was terrified to be in. And he said, Jason, nobody wants to buy a TV online. And, at the, uh, and by, the way, by the way, back then he was probably right. TVs were giant and CRT-based and, and uh, pretty, pretty difficult to ship. Uh, but I didn't know it at the time, but that quote was going to become the theme of my career. Um, not very long after that meeting, I was in a similar meeting at The Gap, and then the CEO of The Gap, Mickey, Mickey Drexler, explained to me why no one would ever buy clothes online because they need to try them on and feel the fabrics. And Howard Lester, the CEO of uh, Williams-Sonoma, was convinced that no one would ever buy tabletop online because they needed to see the, the beautiful workmanship. Um, Bruno Pavlovsky, the, the the president of Chanel, you know, explained to me that, Jason, luxury is built in the dressing room, not on a website. Um, and then as recently as 2018, I accidentally got in a public feud on Twitter with the Stern family, um, which are the primary owners of Patek Philippe, uh, who were convinced that uh, people should never buy watches online and that uh, I, I literally quote, people should use their legs more and walk to the store. Um, so for those of you that don't follow these industries, today Apple sells more watches online than all of Switzerland. 50% um, of all consumer electronics in the United States are bought online. More than 70% of all Williams-Sonoma sales are online. Last year, partly aided by the pandemic, more apparel was bought online than in all of stores. And even for most restaurants, for Panera Grill, they sold more meals online than they, they did people walking in and ordering from their restaurants. Um, so all of those industries where these really smart leaders told me, hey, uh, digital is not going to disrupt our industry, uh, have been disrupted by digital. And for a while, I was shocked that I had to keep having this conversation over but, and over. But what I've learned is that we are still super early in this disruption, and that's why people don't understand um, what's happening. The largest segment of consumer uh, industry is the automotive industry. It's 25% of retail. With the exception of one company, no one sells cars online. Uh, the second largest category is grocery. It's 17% of retail. Before the pandemic, less than 2% of grocery sales were online. We are still early in this disruption, and people have to remember that incumbents don't generally do well in disruptions. Um, none of the har ice harvesters that made a fortune harvesting ice like invested in ice factories, and none of the ice factory um, owners invested in home ice machines. It's just, it's just not how... Uh, business owners tend to think, but this digital disruption is fundamentally changing all our industries, not just our retail industry. Those department stores and specialty big box that used to win on convenience and assortment can't win against a website with 800 million products. Um, and without those stores, the mall doesn't work with its anchor tenants and the um, the unit economics of that doesn't work. We now have a significant um, forecast that 25 to 50 percent of the 1,200 regional malls in the U.S. are on the verge of close. That eight closing, 80,000 stores in the U.S. could close 
we're so wildly overstored that that's not really a, a huge problem for the industry. Um, and what I, what I always have to remind people is brick and mortar is always going to have a role in, in retail. I'm not an anti-brick and mortar person, but always be suspicious when someone tells you people will never or people like the old way, right? Uh, today, we, we have people saying everyone's going to go back to the grocery store because people like picking their own produce. Um, but I've been told that in the Industrial Revolution, you know, they used to make the argument that people like knowing the farmer that grew their wheat and they would never buy these national brands of flour, for example. And most of you probably don't know the farmer that grows your wheat today. Um, so this digital disruption is happening. We're still early. It's having profound impacts on our society. Um, two key ways that it's changing um, in, in the last 30 seconds are that brands and retailers are colliding. Sucharita is going to uh, talk a lot more about this. But because of digital, winning based on assortment and convenience is really hard. We tend to have one aggregator in every market that wins based on that. So that's Amazon or Alibaba or Mercado Libra. For anyone else, it becomes really hard to make money selling other people's stuff. So most other flavors of retail end up looking like a curated brand that sells their own stuff, often bundling it with services. And so you see people like Nike pivoting from being a, a wholesaler to a, to a, a direct-to-consumer brand. Um, and we also see the shopping experience get unbundled. We, we say frequently that e-commerce solved buying but broke shopping. In the old world before digital, awareness, interest, desire, acquisition, delivery all happened at the same moment in a store in front of a shelf. Procter & Gamble named it the first moment of truth. Um, and the, the idea was you became aware of a product, wanted it, and bought it all at once. Digitally, that, that doesn't have to happen that way. Um, the interest for that product might happen on a social network and awareness might happen on an ad on Facebook, um, but acquisition could happen on an e-commerce site, whereas delivery happens from that e-commerce or from that uh, UPS driver. And so thinking about unbundling the shopping experience in the store into all these micro moments um, you know, is an interesting part of this, this digital disruption we're playing through. So uh, hopefully that's enough to get us started before the smart speakers come in, Larry, but happy to... Uh, talk about it more right. when we get to the Q&A section. Sure. We're going to do Q&A, uh, Jason, Catherine, and Sushriya together. So we're going to go straight to our second speaker, uh, and that is my co-host on today's show, Catherine Manessabian, who is the president and GM North America Commerce for Stanley Black & Decker. Catherine, fire away. Great. Thanks, Larry. So um, COVID was, was an aberration in history. All at once, we had to completely reimagine every single aspect of our lives. And as we know, there were many losers, but there were also winners. And hitting very close to home, uh, Stanley Black & Decker, where I work, just reported the best quarter in the company's history. Now, while growth will obviously moderate, I'm here to tell you why strength in home improvement and outdoor, uh, similar to what Jason's retail clients are telling him, uh, is not just a COVID phenomenon. So starting with the home body economy that emerged during the pandemic, Lockdowns reversed uh, the long-standing trend of declining time spent at home and on material possessions. Home became the command center. It was reorganized and decluttered. We bought plants and rugs and patio heaters. We created home gyms. We redecorated. And to put it in perspective, 80% of homeowners worked on a project during COVID, and almost 40% of consumers said that they used a new tool for the first time. The reasons were varied. Uh, no commuting to work meant more time to revisit the to-do list, 
landscaping and services were canceled due to safety concerns with, with using contractors in one's home. And in the absence of travel and going out to eat, there were budget shifts. This reconfiguring of homes then converged with digital trends. Uh, some of the, the ones that, that, that Jason mentioned, but again, to dimensionalize it, 25% of U.S. adults suddenly found themselves in front of screens all day long, you know, as offices digitized overnight. And they spent an hour more per day on digital activities, streaming movies, social media, e-commerce instantly accelerated years into the future, including categories such as tools and materials. While most purchases today, both online and offline, begin online, this is especially true of DIYers who do a lot of pre-work and use their phones for product information. They see YouTube as the place to learn how to build a compost bin. So again, the confluence of these two factors, the homebody economy and digital acceleration, prompted a surge in the sale of tools and lawn and garden equipment, and you can see it in the earnings of home product manufacturers and the home centers. So now flash forward. CDC end, ended mask mandates and you know, cities are reopening. Will the boom in DIY continue or will behaviors revert back quickly post COVID? So the bears might cite supposed headwinds. You know, there's the higher prices for, for building materials like, like lumber, um, the stimulus is, is gonna taper off, discretionary spending will go back to leisure and entertainment and people are obviously no longer confined to their homes. So no one has a, has a crystal ball, but generally speaking, there are three categories when it comes to post-pandemic behavior. Number one is you know, things that snap back to normal. So one example is, is leisure travel with some airlines already back to 90% of 2019 levels. Category two, some behavior continues, maybe you know, this could be grocery and restaurants where spend levels return closer to 2019, albeit with, with notable shifts. And then the third category is where there is a fundamental reset, something perhaps like, like the trend to casual apparel. So when it comes to home improvement trends, Americans will not snap back to pre-pandemic routines. And the first reason is the stickiness of the consumer changes. The 30% of consumers have made substantial investments in their homes. They acquired new skills, they established a DIY habit, and they have a new sense of confidence. You can just look to social media to see how emotional and empowering it is to be a maker. And speaking of habits that are hard to break, consumers are even more comfortable now fueling their DIY passion through e-commerce. And on top of this behavior stickiness, there are also secular trends. So as mentioned earlier, residential construction is booming, fueled by low mortgage rates. We've seen the flight from expensive cities, which will continue with the new you know, hybrid work arrangements. Then we have both aging housing stock and low inventory. And then finally, millennials are a large percent of first-time homeowners. It was 40% of home purchases last year, and they are flush with savings, and Desmond spoke of, of pent-up demand, but they are, they are wanting to reinvest in their homes. Survey data um, would support my optimism. So home means a lot more now. Homeowners expect to spend equal, if not more, in 2020 on their homes, than 2020 on their homes, both this year and next. So 
just you know matters to me i'm in the tool business but why why does this matter more broadly speaking industry analysts um Suturita can chime in have drastically different estimates on what the, the future holds don't try to find a, a forecast on e-commerce it's uh, it's you know it, they're, they're very varied perspectives and investors i think have priced in caution but having a perspective on where behaviors will net out is critical as these shifts continue to impact retail, hospitality, real estate, healthcare. Um, every company will have to reorient themselves post-COVID again. But I am more bullish, um, more than bullish, when it comes to the homebody economy not being a fad. So in conclusion, you know, Pandemic aside, uh, we are, you know, in a, in a VUCA world of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, and businesses have to constantly be anticipating where consumer behavior is shifting. Um, the home and the related economy around it took on an entirely new meaning during the pandemic. We can't expect growth to continue at last year's toward pace, but fixing up the home is now deeply embedded in the homeowner psyche the housing market's on a tear, and e-commerce and digital acceleration will only intensify. And I personally uh, expect to have a blowout Father's Day. Thanks. Thank you, Catherine, and thank you for being a co-host and setting this up uh, the panel today. Our final speaker today, before we go to Q&A on the retail panel, is Sucharita Kodali. She is a VP at Forrester and an expert on digital and direct-to-consumer with brands. Go ahead, Sucharita. Thank you, Larry. Why brands are moving direct-to-consumer. Um, the phrase direct-to-consumer is one of the most buzzy terms that makes retailers breathless these days. And I'm going to talk about what it actually means, why it matters, why it's happening now, and what happens next. So what is direct-to-consumer or DTC? Um, I will not be talking about Dollar Shave Club, Glossier, or other VC-funded companies. Those are digitally native, vertically integrated pure plays. What DTC is for the purpose of my six minutes involves traditionally wholesale brands. Think of, as Jason had mentioned, companies like Nike or Samsung, Whirlpool, or Pampers that historically sold their products through other distributors or retailers. DTC is the efforts of those brands now to bypass those distributors and retailers and sell directly to their end consumers, sometimes in stores, but most often online. This is what I'm going to talk about, and this is a big deal. Now, why does this matter? Um, is this crucial, like COVID-19 vaccines or a solution to climate change? Of course not. But this matters because retail, as we've known it for over 100 years, happens in major phases. Major phases of the past included the era of catalogs like Sears Roebuck, the golden age of malls and department stores like Macy's, the era of big box category killers for books, toys, office supplies, and more. Um, and by the 1980s and 90s, we saw the decades of hypermarkets and warehouse clubs. And by the turn of the 21st century, we saw the advent of the internet and e-commerce marketplaces. But what you'll notice is that nearly all of these retail formats are multi-category and multi-brand. There's one exception, vertically integrated specialty mall merchants, usually in apparel because that was one sector that could actually afford traditional store real estate. Think of The Gap or Ann Taylor as examples. 
But those wholesale brands like Nike, Samsung, and L'Oreal that were sold through one of those, uh, they were traditionally sold through multi-category retailers. And the next phase of retail is those brands going directly to consumers. They become the retailers of the future. Now, why is this happening right now? Historically, wholesale brands didn't want to get into the business of physical real estate in many categories like, say, packaged goods. Their margins could never justify it. Um, but what is different now are three things. One, the growth of e-commerce, which really hit an inflection point only around 2015 when online sales grew to be more than 10% of all of retail. Two, the decline in traditional retail accounts. You see companies like Best Buy were actually growing until 2012, which probably explains a little bit of that reaction that Jason had back in 1999. But if you're a consumer, or if you're in a consumer electronics brand, if that's your business, well, it doesn't make sense to disrupt anything if your biggest account is still growing. And three, E-commerce has been growing, but very, very messy. The biggest players around online, around the world, Alibaba and Amazon, use every manner of hook and crook to procure merchandise, leading to merchandise that ranges from unauthorized to outright counterfeit. This is terrible for brands, and their only recourse is to take back their consumers, which makes more sense than ever now, um, because it's cheaper to have a storefront than ever before. You can stand up a Shopify shop that can service an entire country for a few hundred dollars. Forrester conducts lots of research on exactly this, and over and over shoppers tell us, I trust the brand site because that's where I find authentic merchandise. So what happens next? The next phase of retail is not just DTC, but what I call the Nikeization of retail. Nike has been the leader in this DTC trend, and what that company has done is worth note because theirs is the playbook on how a brand shifts from wholesale to DTC. They fired thousands of their distributors and have explicitly told the street that they're going to sell directly to consumers while also preserving a small, a very small number of key retail accounts. I think in the case of Nike, it was like 40. They aren't getting rid of traditional retail, but they are reducing the companies they're partnering with. They make more money that way, and they own valuable data about consumers that they can use for marketing, product development, and even alternative monetization like media or content. I did a survey of brands recently, and even CPG brands said DTC was more profitable and gave them data for their future marketing purposes. So brands like Yeti, Birkenstock, Dyson, and Apple are already down this path. And I expect this to happen in every category, including consumer packaged goods. Now, you may be skeptical. Will somebody really go to Doritos.com to buy chips? I say yes. Thanks to Amazon Prime, consumers already are in the habit of buying one thing at a time. And not only that, People in the future will likely be texting Doritos their orders, and what you want can be delivered to you by a company like a GoPuff or an Instacart, or picked up locally from a local retailer that has it. That is how brands, retailers, and consumers all stay happy. 
So I see this as the next big phase of retail. We'll all just buy from the brands we love, and they'll give us the incentives to do so. Thank you very much. Love it. Okay. Um, let's drill down a little bit on Nike for a second. Um, what do you see when you get in a Nike store that's different from another store? What is so special about what they're doing? Well, Nike has um, what I would call in retail, they have like essentially a good, better, best strategy. So they have thousands and thousands of products, right? Um, they put in their stores the cream of the crop. It is um, their way of really differentiating the Nike brand and, um, and also selling their, their best quality merchandise. A lot of the lower end merchandise they leave to partners like a famous footwear or maybe a DSW or um, somebody that is, uh, is at a different tier of the retail spectrum. Um, so that's part of it is their merchandising assortment. Um, they also do a lot of personalization, um, but not personalization that we think about, oh, like, um, you know, minority report type of personalization where you're, you know, somebody calls out your name um, as you're walking by a mannequin. What they do is there's a lot more customization, I would say, for individual stores in different um, parts of the country. So a store in Manhattan Beach in California may have a very different look and feel with merchandise that's more tailored to that um, demographic. A store in Tokyo will have a completely different look and feel um, that's tailored to the demographic needs and you know kind of whatever is popular with athletes in those markets. So, um, so that's a significant part of what they've been doing with with their strategy. Um, and uh, and and not surprisingly, I mean they've also limited some of their their most um, you know kind of elite product I mean it's 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 they were the the really the the first companies to really create this concept of drops um, which they did with uh, their Jordan brand um, years ago I want to talk about Zara for a second um, what's amazing to me about Zara is they're able to like figure out from other parts of the world like what's going to be hot this season and then they can adapt very quickly to provide product in their stores a few weeks later when you mentioned before that firms because of dgc can ascertain valuable data are you talking about that so that they can take that data and change their product mix instantaneously what what is the value of that data all, yes, that is definitely it. It is more real-time, um, you know, mining of what are people actually buying or consuming, which you would presumably have a little bit more insight on. Um, everything from even search terms, you know, kind of are people not buying you because, um, you know, they're they're looking. You know, when when somebody buys a product in a physical store, you don't know what else was really in their consideration set unless um, it's your store. So, so certainly that, but it's also, um, it could be, you know, insight on, on the consumer itself and what are their needs. Um, historically, wholesale brands never had any consumer data, but now you can actually explicitly just ask a customer straight up, what do they want or what do they not want? And uh, you get more than insight from just a focus group, which is really what wholesale brands had relied on in the past. And Larry, this is Jason. I would just pile on there. Uh, 
it, it, it's kind of funny. Um, Zara is a perfect example. Like the way fashion used to work is Paris fashion show would happen. Gap would watch the fashion show and then make, you know, some knockoffs of, of those items. And it would take six months to 18 months for them to get to the store. And IDEX, which is Zara, their, their big innovation was, you know what, we can knock off the Paris fashion show in six weeks or four weeks instead of six months. And that created a huge competitive advantage. But now that same thing is happening to them because of the trends Sucharit is mentioning, there's a, a, a Chinese company that sells globally called Shein, um, and they, instead of using the Paris fashion show as signals for what people want to wear, they're using feedback on Instagram and popular videos on YouTube, and when they see an influencer wearing a style on YouTube, they create it and sell it in four days. Um, and they are now growing you know, much faster than any of those those traditional fast fashion companies. So today it is more the, the um, stitch fixes of the world and the Shein's using data to build what customer wants instead of some creative director, you know, that says he knows what kids want. Yeah, and to chime in there, D2C success within these, you know, uh, traditional manufacturers is not necessarily measured by the actual e-commerce volume, which might be low, the unit economics might not work. But it's really the value is in, you know, as, as brands become retailers and build direct relationships with consumers, digital is increasingly a source of all the insights. If you think about it, manufacturers traditionally don't have um, a lot of access to data. And this will inform sort of everything from product development to, um, you know, the overall business strategy that extends far beyond uh, e-commerce and digital. Catherine, just following up, what Sucharita was saying was they used to use focus groups to help them learn what customers wanted. Um, what, how does uh, a company like Black & Decker figure out what products to make and then uh, just figure out if it's in fact working? And how do we think that will change? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, historically, um, you know, ads were were part of the purchase decision and that's been replaced by by social media it's been sort of disaggregated as as Jason said you're you're looking in one channel you're purchasing in another which makes attribution very very difficult um, but I think what's different now is that consumers across the border right are looking to brands for inspiration for education for product information and what that does and is provide this repository of very, very rich information, everything from product reviews to sentiment. Um, and the beautiful on, thing about online is that everything is measurable. So the, the days of sort of looking at sentiment and um, you know, very abstract uh, measures like brand health and such are now um, translating into very, very actionable insights that can inform uh, everything from bundling to upselling and cross-selling to um, product development strategy. I think the challenge is that this is a, a new muscle for traditional companies who, um, you know, who, who aren't used to managing direct relationships with consumers with, with using, using the, the data and, um, you know, in their large global matrix organizations. So I think a lot of the challenge will be, you know, sort of in the evolution from a, from a culture and a capabilities perspective to, to really transform. But digital insights are, are at the core of the next phase of manufacturers consumerizing. Jason, um, how would you advise a manufacturer to develop its relationship with its customer? Yeah, um, well, so per, per Catherine's point, like it's, it's sometimes 
you know, telling them to do 180 degrees and fire their wholesalers and just exclusively sell direct and, and you know, start creating that relationship is turns out not to be the way to convince people. Um, we need to be a little more nuanced and just nudge them a little bit. And so the, the, the common advice that, that I'll give are to launch some direct-to-consumer initiative that's adjacent to selling, right? So, you know, it, maybe it, it, it's not, hey, you need to sell the pet food direct to the consumer, but maybe there's a service that you can launch um, related to your pet food that consumers will want to use. And again, in a way, the marquee example of this is Nike. It's Nike Plus, right? So before Nike said, hey, we're going to fire all our retailers and sell direct, they said, hey, you know, you still buy our Air Jordans at Foot Locker, but create an account at Nike because we have this awesome new ecosystem called Nike Plus. Um, and so, you know, Nike built a bunch of customer relationships through that. And, you know, then, you know, fast forward eight years and you can't buy the new Air Jordan drops at Foot Locker. You can only buy them direct from Nike. Um, so I think, you know, thinking about the, the you know, selling the, the dog walking meetup service for a pet company or the, the mile tracking service for a shoe company are, are some sort of interesting ways, um, you know, these contests that brands run for personalized products, right? So let, letting you buy custom M&Ms or custom Oreos, again, that's not going to be a high volume play necessarily, but you're going to meet your 50,000 most loyal brand advocates there. And then you, you can use that to collect data. And then I guess one last example, uh, Hasbro game company, um, instead of paying for these focus groups and getting eight opinions about whether the new game they want to launch is great, they launched a custom subscription box of beta games. So they got their most loyal fans to pay them for a subscription and they get new games every month and they, they pay for the privilege of being in that focus group. And again, that created an opportunity for Hasbro to both meet their best customers and get data on their best customers that they could use to inform their That's future fantastic. product developments. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of the um, it, it's you know at, at Stan Black and Decker, like you know we have we have no plans of of you know disintermediating our, our very um, strong retail relationships, but we think that the data that's gleaned you know can help um, inform some of um, some of our partner strategies and sort of an e-captaincy type of relationship. So it's D to C to us is is not defined as as you know selling competitively. It's it's more defined as you know sort of rising tide raises all boats in terms of using these these rich insights to. Um, meet the customer where they where they want to be. Sushirita, one thing I uh, didn't. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Larry. So, Sushir, one of the things um, that we've spoke about in the past is the giant in e-commerce is Amazon, and I'm just wondering how someone like Nike, who's trying to develop this, you know, Nike website, Nike store, how does a, a brand like that interrelate with Amazon, the 10,000-pound gorilla in the room? Well, Nike made the decision to not sell on Amazon at all. Um, and anything that you find that is a Nike product on Amazon is usually gray market or rogue products. And that actually um, was going to be my comment from the, from the last question of, of manufacturers and their consumers, um, which is the number one problem with the Internet right now for all brands is that there is too much gray market merchandise out there. What that means is gray market is unauthorized 
stuff. Um, that there is an intermediary that um, you know kind of may sell you something that doesn't have a warranty, or it's um, product that may be coming from overseas, or it's product maybe that some parts have been replaced. I mean, there are any number of issues that happen with gray market goods. And the reason that we have gray market goods is that manufacturers, for the most part, are a mess with respect to their distribution. And they don't track their distribution, they don't know where products end up, up, um, and they don't have a way to um, see what goes downstream or to where. And that's part of the reason that Nike went from thousands of distributors to I think like 40 right now is in, a, in, in order to do exactly what I'm just describing is just have better tracking and knowing where product is going and who's getting their hands on it. Because if you can't do that, your stuff is going to end up on Amazon, whether you like it or not, or Alibaba or, or, or eBay or some other marketplace. And um, that is not only potentially a risk to consumers, but it's also a risk to other, um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a huge channel conflict issue because your, um, your legitimate distributors wonder how come the prices are so low online and you know kind of what's going on that you, you know somebody else is able to sell something at like you know 20% less of a cost than or even below cost so so all of that needs to be brought into line for other other companies. Not everybody has the ability to do what Nike did and just cut Amazon off. Um, but what you are seeing, like Yeti is a great example. I mean, who would have thought that a cooler company would sell as much directly through to consumers? I think it's like well over 30% of their sales now are DTC. And part of the way they do that is that they do sell on Amazon, but they have just a handful of distributors who are allowed to sell on Amazon. Anybody else is not allowed to sell, and that's how they're able to, but they too have tight distribution, and they know exactly who's got a legit Yeti product, and um, you know, they're able to, to authenticate things um, you know, much, much more tightly than, than a lot of other brands do. Sam Weinberg, are, are you still on the line with us? I am. Sam, I, I try to blend in you know, conversations we've been having across spectrums here. Um, it's interesting that Tushri was just talking about the problem of fake goods, and you were talking about the problem of, of fake news. I was wondering how you thought about what they, what they were talking about here with, of controlling information flow and, uh, and learning a little bit. You were complaining before how Exxon was really in charge of this website, uh, but didn't really disclose it. And here, brands are desperate to say, no, I want to control my information and make it very clear to the consumer that it is Exxon who is explaining how to use this product. Just try to get a different perspective. What do you make of this conversation? Well, well I just want to kind of correct, I think, and, and apologize for what I might have conveyed as a, a misimpression. The, the website was from a, a lobby group that is a dot org, um, but it did not disclose its funding from Exxon on the issue of climate science. Now, that doesn't mean that the information it purveys is absolutely false, but there is clearly an issue of a conflict of interest. Now, the, the, the way that we prepare to read text, and if we're doing a deep dive, and if this is something that we're going to defend in our oral examination, 
then yes, do a deep dive and spend a great deal of time. But in an age where we are making fairly quick decisions and trying to locate reliable information quickly, the appearance of a conflict of interest should send us looking for a better site, a site where the conflict of interest is not so much in our face. So again, the, you know, I think that we're going to make mistakes all the time. But, you know, I, I, I often think about, you know, Atul Gawande's book uh, the, about, uh, about checklists and how the simple act of having surgeons uh, in a checklist before going into surgery wash their hands profoundly lowered the, the, the number of kind of infections that were caused by dirty hands going into a, a, a chest cavity. And so, again, I, I, I don't want to, to, to say that just because there's a corporate sponsor of a site, it's wrong. I want to say we should have a sense when we're looking at something that we're unfamiliar with of what other people say about it on the web. And when you think about a medium, to go back to what are the affordances of this technology, we, are, we have the possibility of becoming informed in a medium where information is all electronically linked. That is completely different from an analog age where when we go and take a book off a library shelf, the only things that they share are you know, common dust mites and a, a Dewey decimal system that was invented in the same year that Colorado became a state. So we're just not up to speed with the affordances of this technology that's at our disposal. Jason, a question for you on Amazon. Um, I almost exclusively shop at Amazon. I've abandoned brick and mortars. I've abandoned uh, you know, e-commerce away from Amazon. And when I go to Amazon at the top, whenever I, I do a search, it says that this product is sponsored. So <laughs> like with Sam, with Sam wants, they say, look, you know, this is advertising. We're honest with you. Uh, this is not necessarily what, you know, they paid for this real estate. And then they got something called Amazon Choice. And I, I don't know why, but I, I give that a lot of credence. Like, I, I need to consider this option for sure. And then um, I go down the website, and then it says, um, this is the Black & Decker section. Like, the, the manufacturers actually said, you know, how to think about this particular product. And then below that are these ratings, and that's actually where I spend a lot of my time. And I think this is what Sam was talking about before of doing my research kind of away from the website, even though this is clearly within Amazon. I read the reviews. They, I, they appear to be independent for me. And I don't think they've been gamed. I'm worried about it, but I'm not too worried about it. And then I look at the ratings and I make my decision um, using what Sam was talking about before about some Simon optimization function of satisfying. Um, how do you think about Amazon's mm -hmm. creation of that phenomena? And is that ecosystem the future? Um, is it gamed? Is it problematic? What do you think? Yeah. So, so first of all, uh, yes, it is gamed. <laughs> you should be a little, you should be a little more skeptical. Um, but, but you're very typical. So, so A, fun fact, those ratings and reviews turn out to be the most influential attribute in all of e-commerce. Like there's literally nothing I can do on a product detail page to juice sales more uh, than have more ratings and reviews. And I, I mean that specifically, more ratings and reviews. The volume of ratings and reviews is actually more influential than the, the actual numeric number of the ratings. Um, the, uh, for a variety of reasons, but it turns out 
a, a great number of, of consumers perceive that some of those ratings and reviews are gamed, but the, the, the irony is um, they believe that they're so expert in, in e-commerce shopping that they can recognize the fake reviews from the not fake ones, which of course they can't. Um, so like side note, an easy way to tell is like new product will get introduced that's not even on the market yet and 30 reviews will show up for it on Amazon before any, any consumers ever had a chance to, to get a hold of the product. Um, there's a lot of actual litigation going on right now where, you know, Amazon has caught people gamifying reviews. Um, there are laws against that. So, you know, Amazon to have uh, maintain credibility for the ratings and reviews has kind of aggressively tried to police that. And then most famously, there, there were some very successful direct-to-consumer brands on Amazon that Amazon just kicked off the platform. Um, and it's, while they haven't explicitly stated it, it appears that that was a response to these companies getting caught um, sort of paying bounties for favorable reviews. So the reviews are super influential and uh, they, they are another imperfect source that we should take Sam's advice on how to sort of personally vet. But one of the things that's super interesting to me is at the moment, 85% of sales still happen in brick and mortar stores. The big trend is those ratings and reviews are so powerful that they're starting to move into the stores. So Amazon's launched a new grocery store concept and there are ratings and reviews next to every can of soup in that store and every bag of chips. Um, and so that, that's suddenly going to make ratings and reviews a heck of a lot more important to all these consumer packaged goods than it was, you know, a few, a few months ago. So it's an interesting space. So this is Sucharita. Just quickly, um, there are two websites that as we, if we are able to move forward with Sam's recommendation of educating people, um, there are two sites that actually have, um, one's called Review Meta and the other is Fake Spot, and they exist to try to quantify how many reviews on Amazon are actually fake um, because we do know that a significant portion are specious. So, um, you know, in the same way that we need to educate ourselves about news, we need to also educate ourselves about supposedly user-generated content that is designed to get us to buy, um, which may not actually be authentic content. And just, just to kind of follow up your point, um, I think Suchereed is right. We want to be able to spot uh, fake reviews. And you mentioned also, like, this is, like, incredibly important this is like an enormous asset that Amazon has. And I think to the extent that Amazon can make it uh, truthful, it, it is the primary beneficiary. So is your expectation that Amazon will engage in exactly the sort of fake spotting uh, and policing of this rating system, or are the incentives mixed? No, I don't think the incentives really are mixed. I think, uh, and Sucharita may say I'm too naive, but... Um, the, I, I don't think Amazon has any interest in there being any fake reviews on the platform. I just think they're diminishing returns for how much money they're willing to, to spend um, to mitigate that. They, it's for sure worth it to spend some because credibility on those reviews is super important. It may not be worth spending enough money to be perfect, um, but the, the, I, I, uh, I think you are exactly right that Amazon's volume of reviews is one of their biggest competitive moats, um, is that they've collected more reviews. Almost every other e-commerce site does what's called review syndication. So um, when uh, 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 
you know, uh, pick a pick a company. When Procter and Gamble launches a new product, they get ratings and reviews on their own website, and they syndicate those reviews to Target and Walmart. So the review you see on Target could have been written by a Target shopper, but it also could have been written by a Procter and Gamble shopper that Procter and Gamble loaned to Target. Um, and Amazon doesn't syndicate reviews because their feeling is we have so many more than everyone else. We don't want anyone else's, and we don't want anyone getting ours. So they they protect them and make them a competitive moat. In your free time, the funniest uh, page on all of Amazon, uh, like search Amazon for Reviews Hall of Fame, and there literally is a page where they rank the most prolific reviewers on Amazon. And these top reviewers, like there's this woman, Harriet Klausner, that's been like in the top 10 for 12 consecutive years. Um, by my math, she's influenced over 60 million transactions on oh Amazon. Oh, my God. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, you think about that, like at Amazon's AUV, Harriet Klausner is probably responsible for $360 million worth of sales on Amazon. Amazing. Alex Barak, are you still on the line? I am. Alex, what do you make of all this? You have a different perspective as an economist. As you hear about some of these challenges in e-commerce, what are some of your own thoughts? One thing which I think hasn't been brought up is the globalization international aspect. Um, you know, I uh, actually purchased quite a bit of stuff on Etsy, uh, and I often find that, you know, it could be furniture or something like that, that I'm buying from a company in uh, Turkey or, you know, in India, um, uh, perhaps as somebody, uh, you know, the, the jeweler or somebody personal. And it seems like on the web, uh, this just gives a uh, a much bigger opportunity for small sellers, somebody somewhere else in the world. And I just wondered what the uh, what the other people on the panel uh, have to think about globalization and particularly kind of small sellers elsewhere in the world. That's, that's Jason. That's a, a great point. Um, a in, for those that may not know, 60% uh, of the sales on Amazon are marketplace sales. So about 40% of all Amazon sales are stuff where they bought the goods and then resell it to a consumer. 60% Amazon takes a commission on introducing a buyer to a seller in the same way Etsy does. And um, Amazon uses that in a lot of uh, uses that fact in a lot of different um, ways, uh, particularly when there, there, there's uh, talk of regulation. Um, and, you know, one of the things Amazon really touts is like, we've helped so many small businesses that are successfully selling on our marketplace. And they're, they're you know, hyping all, all of this, like partly to uh, sort of dissuade antitrust regulators. Um, and the inconvenient truth that has come out, which could be good or bad, depending on your perspective, is that a majority of those, those uh, marketplace sellers are from outside the United States. So per your point, it, it is China, absolutely mostly. enabling. Yeah. Yeah. Primarily China. Right. Um, and so, yeah, per your point, it's creating a lot of global opportunities. It's really reducing the friction across border trade. Um, if you're a U.S. Uh, producer of goods, one of the easiest ways for you to go cross border is, you know, you just check a box that says your stuff's eligible for sale internationally and Amazon will use its artificial intelligence magic to figure out how to distribute your goods um, to various warehouses and make it available in all these other countries. So the the barriers to cross-border trade are lower than they've ever been before. Um, depending on where you sit, uh, you know, you could be an American producer that suddenly feels like you have more unfair competition from lower labor rate countries. 
um, or you know you could feel like it's a you know tremendous free market opportunity. Yeah, beyond Amazon. Can I ask a quick question? Catherine, yes. Sushirita was talking about uh, fake stuff. Um, I imagine that uh, Stanley Black & Decker gets problems with fake stuff. Uh, how do you deal with that problem? How do you police it? How do you, um, is, it, is it a huge problem or is it something that's like second or third order? What's going on? Fake stuff. You know, it's not, you know, I, as you know, I come from apparel where it was definitely more, more of an issue, but I think that this, um, you know, e-commerce comes with, you know, with it, with the, with the, you know, uh, democratization that we're talking about and the, you know, the, the, the growth, um, you know, you look at the percentage of growth that it's driving for, for most companies, not, not the percentage of business that it is. Um, it does come with its share of challenges, which um, Tucharita speaks to often. Um, you know, it's not just it's IP, it's um, pricing, it's, um, you know, counterfeit, but it's created a, a, a the Wild West. And um, Tucharita, keep me honest, but the, reg, the regulation hasn't kept a pace and enforcement is, is a whole new, um, new world. So I think all companies are, are really trying to understand um, you know, marketplace management, for lack of a better word, and how they manage sort of um, their, their resellers, the they counterfeit issues, the pricing issues, all of the, the complexity that comes with, with online. But it's really um, created an entirely new paradigm um, and levels of complexity for, for, the, for the overall business. Um, not just for for the web, but you know for for the omni business. Yeah, what we see is that typically the more well known the brand is, often um, there may not be outright counterfeit, but what you'll see is replacement parts being counterfeit, or um, you know some component has been ripped out and replaced with something that's lower quality. So that's, um, that's often what you see, and, and that's how, you know, you get these wide, wide disparities in pricing online. Jason, just Another, uh, this is Alex. This is Alex again. Ahead, Alex. Another question for the panel, which hasn't been brought up, but um, take a look at uh, Tesla and the electric uh, car companies in general. They want to sell uh, direct to the consumer, but uh, that's currently illegal in most states uh, to do that because the auto dealerships have created a basically a kind of cartel uh, to keep out uh, direct uh, sales from uh, electric car companies, uh, from all car companies, but especially electric, because the electric uh, cars require a lot less maintenance. So uh, it makes more sense to do direct sales to consumers, because with the uh, dealership, the dealership can price it really low, but then they get you on the maintenance. They want to come you down. They want you to come back to the dealer for the maintenance. While if you have an electric car, you can buy it directly uh, from the uh, manufacturer if it were legal. But right now it's illegal, uh, and I'm wondering uh, uh, what the uh, panel thinks about uh, bigger things being sold direct to consumers like automobiles. Oh, Larry, you're killing me. Uh, great question. The uh, Again, in 1999, uh, nobody wants to buy a TV online. Like I've heard from every manufacturer of automobiles in the United States that nobody wants to buy a car online. Um, and, per, and then they go, comma, and it's illegal. Exactly per your point. Um, okay. So a couple things. 
Uh, first of all, the pandemic proved that people do want to buy cars online. Um, and it turns out like the new car sales were, uh, were like slightly up last year uh, over past years. But the big difference is people didn't go to the dealership and they didn't test drive them. Um, and every little in, and as you know, but uh, some of their listeners may not, um, the, the automobile is a three tier distribution model. So the manufacturer makes the car, um, in most states by law, uh, you know, a, a, a dealer buys the car from the manufacturer and sells it to the consumer. Um, so all of these little dealers, some of which are small mom and pops, third generation car dealerships, some of which are giant conglomerates that own a thousand dealerships. All these dealers had to rush to launch e-commerce sites so they could sell cars online during the pandemic. So in the same way, every restaurant turned to DoorDash to collect orders. All these car dealers like rushed to stand up a website. And it turns out lots of co consumers bought their car that way. And the jury's out on what, what they'll do for their next car. My bet is that's a permanent new habit. Um, and so, like, uh, I think that certainly makes sense. In other countries, like China, they sell an awful lot where they, where they don't have this three-tier distribution rule. Um, they sell a lot of cars direct uh, on the big promotion day in China, Singles Day or Double Eleven Day, depending on how you want to count. Um, you know, Mercedes will sell a thousand cars in the first sixty seconds uh, of that promotion. So, so big-ticket items do sell. Uh, Blue Nile sells an awful lot of uh, uh, ten thousand dollar plus engagement rings every day. Uh, via e-commerce. I, I don't think the size of the transaction is really the most important thing. And side note, as I told every one of these auto presidents, I'll tell you, it's not illegal for a manufacturer to sell cars online. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to sell cars online. We just talked a lot about marketplace models. There's nothing stopping Mercedes-Benz from launching a marketplace right now and letting all of their, their dealers uh, compete for the buy box on that marketplace. They, they, they could have a direct-to-consumer website, um, you know, selling inventory from those, those manufacturers tomorrow, um, and they, they should. Uh, but per your point, they don't want to. And Tesla came in and said, hey, we're not going to comply with that law. We're going to lobby against that law and try to sell direct. And they mostly have gone away with it. And a bunch of states have abated their laws because of Tesla and then further abated their laws because of the pandemic. So, like, the, the, the argument that, that uh, enforced three-tier distribution is the reason not to do this is kind of going away. Everywhere there's three-tier distribution. It's going away in automotive. It's going away in alcohol. Um, uh, you know, uh, it, it's a little bit of an artificial excuse for folks that have a serious version of innovator's dilemma. All right. This yeah. is the part of the show where we end on a note of optimism. Uh, I'm going to go around the group. Historically, because of COVID, we've been overly pessimistic. But I have to say that today has been pretty optimistic, and maybe you don't need an optimism note. But here we go. Uh, so, Sharita, why don't you start us off? What are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic that um, we are down in the home stretch, at least in the United States, of the pandemic. And uh, hopefully, with uh, Alex's suggestions, we will get to global um, recovery soon. Great. Uh, Catherine? Um, I guess my note would be, you know, COVID was obviously such a, a painful time for, for so many, but, um, you know, one silver lining is just seeing how quickly companies, you know, adapted their businesses in response with, you know, retail specifically curbside pickup and, you know, inventory management, all the innovation that happened. So I'm optimistic about the, the new business model shift and, you know, and how technology will continue to accelerate. And it, I see it as an opportunity for companies who act very swiftly um, after the crisis. Jason? 
Uh, I'm, I'm super optimistic. The pace of innovation accelerated about 100 times as a result of the pandemic. Most of my favorite companies were born in, in disruptions or recessions. Um, and I, I, I think that, like, you know, again, like a forest fire, we've created a, a huge opportunity for new growth. And we're going to see a bunch of amazing uh, companies uh, emerge because of the opportunities that the pandemic, unfortunately, created. Alex? Uh, so I'm uh, optimistic that we're not going to re-regulate all of the deregulation uh, we did uh, during the pandemic, some of which was awesome. For example, I loved uh, talking with my doctor uh, online and not having to go uh, in person. You could just give, take me a look on the, uh, the cell phone. I think that was fantastic. And uh, so I hope that some of the deregulation that we did is going to have a lasting uh, impact. Great. Okay, that ends today's session. Uh, I want to remind the listeners there will be no show next weekend to celebrate Memorial Day. Our next episode will be the following Sunday, June 6th. Sunday, June 6th, our first speaker will be Andrew Steele, who will discuss his new book called Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old. The science of aging is incredibly topical as scientists are on the cusp of a better understanding of extending lifespan and improving the quality of life in later years. I am desperate to learn more about the fountain of youth. Our second speaker will be the finance professor, Michael Pettis, who will discuss his new book entitled Trade Wars or Class Wars, How Rising Inequality Distorts the Global Economy and Threatens World Peace. Uh, President Biden has proposed a plan to increase the funding of the IRS by $80 billion and double IRS staff in pursuit of an additional $700 billion in revenues. We will host a panel discussion of tax experts to figure out how this will impact the wealthy taxpayer. The panel will include Phil Ryan, who is a principal at the accounting firm of Ryan and Jaraska, as well as Tom Durham, who spent his career at Mayor Brown doing IRS controversy law. Our final panelist will be the future of podcasting, which will be led by Ben Davis at the William Morris Agency. As a fellow podcaster, I want to learn about what works, how to get listeners, and what the future is for this nascent industry. Jason, you may want to check that one out. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any other previous episode or wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned for a week from Sunday to find out what happens next. Thank you so much. And everyone can uh, disengage and hang up. Thank you. Bye-bye.